0: I'm Caleb Zachron, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to new books in business management and marketing. Today I'm speaking with Jack Buffington, author of Reinventing the Supply Chain, a 21st Century Covenant with America. Jack is the Director of Supply Chain and Sustainability at First Key, an Assistant Professor of the Practice and Program Director of Supply Chain Management at the University of Denver. Jack's new book examines the history of global supply chains. These supply chains have generated enormous wealth and prosperity. While also harming millions through deindustrialization and pollution. Reinventing the supply chain weds history of policy, arguing for innovative approaches that can alleviate the externalities presented in our current economic system. Jeff, thank you for joining me today on The New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Caleb. Of course. Uh, th- this was a really interesting book. And and the thing I I think I appreciated about it most was just the, the clarity of it. And y- there- there's really uh, uh, no-, no-, no BS in this book. Uh, y- you really just cut to the heart of the matter a lot of the issues facing us, facing our, our, our economy today. Uh, but before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us about yourself and your background. Yeah, um, it all starts with, I grew up in Baltimore,
1: Maryland, uh, pretty much right when the deindustrialization started to happen to the country, and it really affected uh, the city where I grew up. So it's really a personal matter what I talk about in this book. Um, and then eventually I get back into manufacturing. Um, I ran logistics for uh, Miller corps a big beer company. Um, I also got a PhD in Sweden focusing on sustainability and supply chain. Um, and since then I started a, um, supply chain program at the University of Denver and I run a supply chain practice, a uh, global beer consulting practice for a company called first
0: key. How did this idea for this book first come about?
1: Yeah. It, it came about when I was little on I mean, every, every Saturday I had to go to my grandma's house and she lived in the city and I just started to see things that weren't going well. Um, and then my relatives who had jobs, blue collar jobs, you know, working at the shipyard and steel steel mill, uh, they lost those jobs. And I didn't understand what the supply chain was back then, but
0: I knew that there was something wrong. So for those who who don't know, uh, obviously everyone, as you say, encounters the supply. Anyone in modern life encounters the supply chain in some some shape or form, basically every day. Uh, how would you describe what a supply chain is, and then what a global supply chain is?
1: Yeah. Great question. A supply chain is pretty much a balance of supply and demand, but um, people would talk about you know global trade, local trade, markets. These things have been around for thousands of years. Um, but supply chains really took root after World War II. And supply chains are different than global trade routes in that they're driven by fossil fuels. They're driven by these powerful energy sources, which has made um, you know, global supply chains much more viable. If, if you look at the data, you will see, like right after World War II, there was just an explosion of imports and exports. And right now, it gets to the point where, it's, you know, the pair of jeans that you have on right now costs, uh, you know, eighty cents to ship across the ocean, which is just
0: a marvelous innovation that we all take for granted. You credit supply chains for the creation and destruction of the American dream. Uh, I was wondering if if you could maybe let's start by just dealing with the first part. How did supply chains help create the American dream?
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating story. In that um, throughout history, there's always been this um, problem of too much demand for not enough supply. Right? There was a, people always needed things. There was never enough food. There was never enough clothing. Uh, and then yeah, whatever was uh, produced primarily went to people who could afford things. And lo and behold, all of a sudden, manufacturing took root in the United States. Um, all the infrastructure that was built, <clears throat> the United States is blessed with geography of having these you know wonderful water waterways that you know work our way through the country for portable transportation, the railroads. Um, and so then, all we need is were people to move to this country in order to do the work. Um, so immigrants came from all over the world to participate. Um, and have this American dream where you could live a middle class lifestyle um by being a blue-collar worker. You didn't have to own capital. You didn't have to be rich. You just had to work hard. Uh, and that's, you know, what my relatives came from Poland and Ireland. Um, and you know, I just hear these stories about like how you know my my dad was able to go to college, and you know we live this great life due to these supply chains. it um it was the 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 road up production. You know balancing out with consumption so the more we were able to produce we had this multiplier effect which uh you know ford model t where you know workers would make the car and all of a sudden the cost of the car would be cheaper so blue collar workers for the first time ever in history were able to have these you know what's you know literally an embarrassment of riches which everybody around
0: the world you know embodied as this great american dream Today in the news, we we constantly see stories about the confrontation between uh, capital and, and labor. Uh, and and what, what you really get into is that there was this period of time when both capital and labor did well, and actually capitalists were cared a lot about, or or not all of them, but many of them did care about the, uh, the well-being of their labor. So I was wondering if you could talk about uh, this perspective on the importance of of labor doing just as well as management.
1: Yeah. Uh, and and what's interesting about this whole story, Caleb, is if for anyone who studied economics, you know the the uh, Adam Smith is considered the father of, of modern day capitalism, and he's really bastardized now. Like a lot of people like attribute Adam Smith to free market economics, um, which is some people consider to be unfettered capitalism, which leads into this imbalance between supply and demand. Um, but if you think about what happened back in his day, it uh, was the mercantilist who hoarded um, wealth, you know, he used wealth to create more wealth. Uh, what he was against was that, and his whole purpose of political economics was to try to deploy capital in a way where it would do the most benefit for people to create this multiplier effect. And he talked about this in 1776, and it took a couple hundred years due to fossil fuels for this to be enabled. Um, and, you know, think about it, uh, like it's really a misapplication of globalization to, uh, to do what we're doing today, which is exactly what happened during Adam Smith's time, um, and it's happening all over the world. I mean, it's not just happening in the United States. Uh, next week, I'm going to China, and they have the same problem there. It's just a, a misapplication of capital that, um, you yeah, know, actually prevents growth. For all the segments of the population, so I, you know, having worked in supply chain, this is really the the infrastructure of how these things work properly. And so, when the supply chain is misapplied, and I call it, you know, globalization is spiky through on um, through um, through the supply chain. All you're really doing is is you're benefiting consumers and investors without balancing that out for
0: workers and citizens, and and that's where things will just degrade. Before getting into into the uh, you know the collapse of the American dream uh, as you sort of are alluding to at the end there, uh, you you also discuss a little bit about some of the uh, the kind of the uh, main intellectual thinkers around uh, supply chains Frederick Taylor scientific think theory of scientific management and then also W Edward Deming's and I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about uh, these two men and what their ideas were.
1: Oh, I I love talking about the um I mean, these these. I mean, like a lot of people don't understand is, um, you know, actually the uh, the material and the success through World War II had to do with industrial engineering and industrial production. Um, It really comes down to standardization of how you how you make things, and so uh, you know, it it gets a little bit of a bad name because people believe that standardization leads to Dehumanizing workers and if you misapply it, that's absolutely the case. Um, but in reality, for those of us who've worked in manufacturing, we know that the best way to utilize industrial engineering and in these practices that people like Deming and Frederick Taylor talked about is culture. Um, I work for, uh, for cores, Miller cores, Molson cores. And we we really practiced these industrial engineering practices to improve how things got done through work standardization, you know, improving safety, and that It was all about culture. Uh, and that's what I love about this. Um, it gets a bad name because a lot of companies have misapplied it and use the numbers as a way to um, to create this imbalance that we talk about. Um, but I love like the story of Deming where he. Um tried to apply these principles after World War II as the American auto worker, automakers. and they didn't want to talk to him. So he went to Japan uh, and he worked with uh, Toyota to apply these practices. and the, the Japanese loved it. It was just a total embodiment of their culture, of re- the respect and 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 everything like that. Um and then he came back to the United States and he just, he called the united states the least developed country in the world at the time we were by far the largest economy and he was trying to make this case of you know the poor industrial engineering culture problem that we have in our country um that you know really focuses on a short term cost instead of long term value so i could talk about this for
0: days yeah so it, it, that's sort of interesting that that problem you know to to a certain extent, you could say that that his critiques maybe were uh, uh, eventually, uh, you know, he was right in a sense about the the way in which the you know the deindustrialization would impact American workers. Uh, there was a a statistic that just jumped off the page to me where you where you say in 1980 Flint Michigan had the highest median income for workers under the age of 35, uh, which just seems is the opposite of what what Flint Michigan is today. So I was wondering if you could get, if you could then, you know, get into a little bit about just the, the, the impacts of the industrialization, why this happened, if this is what the the market says is best, why would the industrialization occur?
1: Yeah, it's a real tragedy. Um, you know, like I mentioned, I, I grew up in Baltimore and, you know, I lived there for a long time and just a part of that urban, you know, play. Now, I actually visited Flint and I met with the mayor at the time, Karen Weaver, and we talked about what was happening and basically, yeah. You know, yeah, uh, if we just talk about the Flint story, is uh, they just left town. I mean, General Motors just left town. They moved out uh, in the suburbs. Um, they they damaged the Flint River uh, and didn't repair it. Um, and then what happened was because all of the the revenue left the city because there was no business there, the city went bankrupt. The state had to take over the city. And in a cost-cutting measure, they moved their water source from Lake Huron to Flint without going through any sort of, you know, mitigation studies, trying to figure out if that was a safe way of solving the problem. Um, and the stories, you know, you think about the stories. That's a, that's a story that's out there in the news. Um, my hometown has been decimated. There has not been anything, you know. People left town. Um, the people who were left there had no other methods. To make a living other than illicit drugs um, I, in my career i've done a lot of traveling around these rural towns um you know at, because i work for a national company and i visited these small towns and there was nothing there right because the the textile mills left the the uh the forestry the coal mines left and the problem wasn't that that happened because that was just bound to happen with globalization the united states was you know after world war ii the only big industrial country, you know, left standing. But the problem was is that there was a poor crafted strategy that we could focus more on consumption and that people would turn into white collar workers. Uh, The problem was is that the educational system never shifted away from what it started in the early 20th century, and that is teaching people to read and write to become factory workers. Um, There was never a you know, a great effort in some of these places that were left behind regarding science, technology, engineering, and math (STEM). Um, so basically, what you saw is a bifurcation of the white class doing really well in this global economy, and the blue-collar class, such as some of my relatives, being left behind to to only be able to do service work. So you see it in statistics that the you know the labor rates go up for white-collar workers in college.
0: Uh, they're stagnant and have gone down for blue collar workers. It is, it's such a great, great tragedy, uh, what has happened, especially just, you know, seeing how much wealth is in this, is in this country, uh, and, and just the, the distribution, uh, just really all, you know, picking winners and losers, not necessarily based on what, how good or bad someone is, but just based on, uh, you know, larger global, uh, economic factors. Um, you know, this book. Beyond just focusing on the history and and the sort of the tragedy of, of deindustrialization, uh, you also focus a lot on, on ways that we can fix this. And I know that that's a lot of what your work is. like. You're not just an academic; you you spend a lot of your time actually working on these problems today. So uh, you, you talk about how we can develop a supply chain strategy that that puts an emphasis on the value chain. And I was I was wondering if you could you could explain what the value chain is and, and what this could look like.
1: Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking. That question. That's a great question because. For decades, politicians have talked about restoring you know manufacturing back in the United States, uh, which mathematically is not possible for the way manufacturing happens today. so the G g add-on, if we had Americans making it, it costs twenty five dollars an hour um, you know you get somebody in an Asian country that makes a dollar or two dollars an hour and eighty cents shipping per perigee and so you know so that could never happen so um so if, if that's all you consider to be what supply chains are, then you'll constantly have an imbalance between supply and demand. People in richer countries will be consumers, you know the developing countries, you know increase, increasing are less likely to be a manufacturer due to automation. Um, but really the way the value proposition happens for companies is it's all based on costs um, as opposed to based on value. So back you know in the earlier days when um, uh, demand is greater than supply. The, the goal was to make them equal in order to create that value proposition. And it wasn't being done for any sense of philanthropy. It was made because it was good business, right? Um, and so right now we have a short-term model for uh, financialization of these companies, and that's not going to change. You know, the big company I work for is not going to change, right? And nor should we try to punish, or put regulations on country companies like amazon and and Walmart and you know all these other companies, but what we need is an alternative to that and so a value chain you know if you think about the the four primary stakeholders of consumers state uh, investors citizens, and workers, a value chain focuses on the uh, workers and the citizens through deploying a um Utility system in these cities that provides an opportunity for entrepreneurs to succeed. So it 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 eliminates the problem of capital. So you know, right now as an entrepreneur, if you live in one of these you know cities, there's never going to be any capital that's going to be put in to invest in Baltimore or Flint or any small town. But if we utilize a utility system where we put in you know additive manufacturing blockchain systems and then we charge people in these areas in utility to be able to conduct commerce now we've created a value chain that doesn't you know replace these big models but it gives workers after you know gives cities an opportunity to um to get tax money which is good for citizens it allows workers to have opportunities besides service jobs. So it evens the playing field. So it, it gives, an, and, and the reason why now is a good time for that is because these technologies are starting to become viable. So it's a, I call it a community-based supply chain, and it's a hub and spoke model of localization tied to globalization. And And what I'm doing is I'm putting together use cases on how this can be done for a variety of different industries to show that it's just not an idea. but it the way i the way I frame it, Caleb, is it's our best alternative to the commoditization of everything through globalization.
0: yeah, I, I was wondering if you, if you could uh, talk about some of those use cases or or you know maybe a particular example uh, just to yeah. help to illustrate the point.
1: yeah, I actually have my first one coming up next week on on not. I'm going to China, and I'm participating in a um, research and industry collaboration with you know big healthcare providers in the U.S. and China, you know, Mayo Clinic, um, some of the big players there. Sponsored by the the Science and Technology um, Association for 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 China, which yeah you know, I'm really happy that yeah you know, they're interested in having this conversation regarding collaboration. And so my use case is focused on the pharmaceutical supply chain. Right now, the way pharmaceutical supply chains work is if a drug is branded um, so it's in Pat, then, you know, pretty much the Western countries like the United States, Switzerland, countries like that are gonna produce it in their country um, because it's profitable. But once it goes off Pat, we send it overseas to uh, India and China. And then there's also the issue of the active pharmaceutical ingredients being made in poorer countries. So basically, we have this supply chain that is dysfunctional between how it serves, you know, us in the United States as the largest consumer of pharmaceuticals. Um, China is number two, uh, and they also produce a lot of these ingredients. Um, it's dysfunctional for them as well. So, what I'm proposing that we work on collectively through research is this hub and spoke model of localization and globalization, where we can, yeah. We can. Uh, the the system is uh, self-organizing. Instead of being constrained by capital, it's self-organizing through the use of three D play, printing and blockchain. Because we can start to three D print drugs, um, and so it provides a lot more degrees of freedom both for resiliency of supply, reduction in costs, and collaboration between how the supply chain works. And I was really excited uh, when partners over in China wanted to work with the United States on this because this is an area, healthcare, that you know our two countries should collaborate on. There's plenty of areas that we, you know, we're at each other's turrets, like semiconductors and defense, but areas like healthcare is
0: is a great area where we could work together. So that's that's my first use case that I'm presenting next week. What does that mean for for like local governance? Is that does that mean that that cities and local towns uh, in in your view, will need to become uh, more concerned with global affairs, um, or or is it you know local cities are going to kind of focus on regional regional issues? Like, how, how do you see uh, the role of, of of local governance changing?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'll give you an example. When I went to Flint, is uh, I talked to the mayor there. She was pretty much between a rock and a hard place. Um, yeah, just didn't have enough money. Uh, there really wasn't a tax base there, um, but you know, if we use that same city as an example, it used to be a hub of um, American uh, auto making. Uh, so imagine if in that city they created, you know, for certain parts of a car, uh, you know, they created a hub focusing on um, additive manufacturing, which is three D printing, to, bec- to become a part of the the global automotive supply chain you know, focusing on this area, right? And so, you know, I give you an example of how Flint can focus on cars. You know, Baltimore may focus on um, healthcare because Johns Hopkins University is one of the greatest, you know, medical universities in the world. Uh, And so if there was some sort of feed money from the federal government or the state government which to to get this thing going, which by the way would be much cheaper than, you know, what we're doing today to address these social problems, and then all of a sudden it funds itself through uh, user fees, you know? So you start to attract people who want to build like medical devices in Baltimore because like right now there's no, um, corporation that wants to participate in these cities or small towns or just fly over or drive around areas, right? Yeah. So through the, the local government having the, uh, uh, running the system, as a utility just as you know electricity is a utility water is a utility it's not socialism (laughs) somebody was like it's it's not socialism it's basically enterprising that city so all you do is give the city some seed funding in order to put it in place the other thing you have to do is you have to put stem programs in these inner cities to you know get the people who live there to be able to participate and eliminate the global the, the digital divide so um, it's really exciting. It's not fully fleshed out from a technology standpoint, but my thought is if you wait for it to be fully fleshed out, this is the boat. So instead of letting, you know, big companies be the, um, yeah, the dominant, the only users of these technologies, let's, let's create enterprise zones where cities can, you know, gain a tax base, right? What's their tax base
0: right now? Like, you know, allow their, their people in order to become entrepreneurs. One of the biggest reasons why, like globalization came about was, was because of economies of scale. Uh, you know, it, it's easier to, to, uh, you know, like you said, it's easier to do things, to, to do certain things when you have a large scale, because you, you can outsourcing can become really uh, difficult and expensive. Uh, and then also, you know, it's uh, there, there's the labor question too. You can, you can go and you can produce language better. Uh, so do, do you think economies of scale uh, won't be as important? Uh, in the future, or you, you know, th- there's movement to to try and reduce the the necessity of of these large corporations who dominate uh, one yeah. or two sectors. Yeah. So when that when that
1: concept originally came out in the economics, uh, we have to remember it started when there was a uh, disconnection between supply and demand. So it made sense to concentrate in certain places so that you could increase supply for the entire world to meet demand. Uh, we don't have that problem right now. We actually have the opposite problem, that we have way too much supply and not enough demand. So we use marketing and everything like that to you know, go people to buy more stuff. So this concept of economies of scale is the, the model changes when the problem isn't that you don't have enough supply, the problem is, is that you don't have enough demand. So if you want to enable demand, which is creating value in a community. Um, what you do is you try to. You, you could do that through 3D printing because um, you're going to create the demand by having something produced in that location. That's where the real value is, and you can't do that in the old model because of the labor issue, right? So what we have to do is there's got to be a paradigm shift in economics, and we can't just look at the supply demand equation as it was written back in the 18th century. You know, we have to, I mean, let me give you an example. Food's is a great example of that. Um, In the world, we produce enough food for 150% of the population, and yet 10% of the world population is starving. If you look at Africa, it's even worse, right? So um, if you were able to create, you know, vertical farming, you know, localization of farming through better technology, you know, is that a better situation? Uh, Like how is economies of scale working in certain places? So we talk about this concept of economy of scale being such a great idea, but if you look at it from an over, you know, if you look at it from an overarching standpoint of the entire population, it's not such a good idea, right? Even in the United States, if you look at the percentage of people who live in poverty and who are outside of the supply chain, it really is an outdated concept. So the only way we can tip the scales of that is we focus economies of scale more on the demand side which comes into localization. So, you know, it's a hub and spoke model, right? So you'll still have the big producers, which are what you mentioned, the economies of scale, but you balance that out through localization. So it's a more optimized model. Today, economies of scale represents a maximized model, which is good for some and not for others. So it's more of a balance between the two of this localization and
0: globalization. There, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, talk recently with the Chips Act and the Inflation Reduction Act about uh, reshoring in the United States and and maybe a a shift towards uh, reindustrialization. Um, and I, and I was wondering if these sort of movements uh, are in line with with some of the the ideas that you're advocating for, or if they're if they're different, and if so, how?
1: Um, well, I mean, they they definitely are uh, because I think what you're hearing here is our economy becoming more digitized. More digital STEM based economy. Uh, and so when the United States look, looks what's happening, I mean, like, yeah, the United States didn't really care that much when we shipped making clothes overseas and stuff like that. But now, when you start talking about, you know, concerns of national security related to semiconductors, it's a different issue. That's totally a part of this, right? Uh, but what it also needs to get into, Caleb, is a diversification of what we consider manufacturing to be. So, you know, a microprocessor or a computer is per you know, there's it's not just the chip itself, it's the whole pro, you know, project of making the computer and everything that, which requires different types of labor. Right. So when we talk about semiconductors, if all we talk about is moving it back here and having a bunch of PhD, you kind of know, like people like that to make it, we just kind of miss the point. What we need to do is create a STEM economy. For everyone, right? So people like you and I will be a part of that, right? we would be a part of, you know, design and you know, advanced manufacturing. But yeah, you know, what about the other people becoming a part of that when it comes to the casings of the computer? You know, so so creating this more diversified aggregate economy where you know semiconductors and STEM helps everybody, right? It doesn't just help you know the the white collar people who already are doing well. So. I appreciate the national security thing, but I don't think it goes as far as it should go. I think it should be
0: further encompassing. This is a maybe a, a more uh, general question, just about uh, people's uh, views about you know a free market economy versus a you know more, more government involvement. What what you sort of think is the you know the the future of how we should think about the relationship between the state and the economy whether or not you know we should still in the united states strive for uh you know free market principles or if there's like in these you know beyond just these um national security concerns instances where there does need to be a bit more centralization
1: yeah it's a uh it's a bit of a false narrative uh you know the argument of free market economics Versus government involvement. Basically, it's an issue of one large institution versus another large institution, right? Um, and that's neither one of them are what I'm talking about relative to encouraging innovation, right? So I look, I look at the large corporations. They're going to be who they are. <clears throat> they they don't have any sovereignty, right? So that they they're focusing on shareholder wealth. We're not going to change that. When I was a corporate leader, I had to focus on, you know, our shareholders, right? And that model is not gonna change. Um it but the alternative to that is not big government. The alternative of that is government enabling individuals and communities. That's that's how and by the way, that's how we win in a global model because that's what's great about America, right? So for us to succeed, yeah, you know, is it it's it's not about, you know, it, you know, making making this yeah, you know, making the government run these things. The government should be a place to enable innovation, and yeah, you know, innovation has always happened at the individual and the community level. Problems are solved community by community. Even the whole sustainability problem should be solved. You know, you know, using you know more localized solutions. So I think that's where it gets into this really dangerous ideological false narrative of one person screaming for. Against big government and one person screaming
0: against big business, right? You know, yeah, I, th- I think that's a, that's a good point. There, there's a long uh, history that's kind of re or a long tradition that's slightly reemerging now of antitrust in the United States that sees you know both big government and big business as as two like you said as, as two big entities that uh, you know that the individuals and communities should be be concerned about uh, more or less equally. Um, right, uh, it, Jack. I, I was wondering you know, w- with this discussion that we had, if there, if there's anything just in the news or just, uh, you know, with, with as the economy, as, you know, maybe potentially dipping into, into a recession, if there's a, a, any sort of, uh, uh, thing that you see about how supply chains, uh, you know, think, or, or the sort of the supply chain thinking can help make sense of what we're seeing today.
1: Yeah. Um, so really our industry is focusing on structured problem solving and, um, you know, what what people need to understand about supply chain professionals like what I was. So we learn these industrial engineering principles um, and we're fantastic at problem solving. But the problem is we're focused on only the problem that we're trying to solve for, right? So um, we're not focusing on optimizing what's best for the community and the worker and the investor and the consumer we're focusing on the investor and consumer. And so like what I would love to see is these models as problem solving mechanisms to more optimize all these stakeholders, Um, because that's what we're taught to do. I mean, some of the challenges that I've faced in my career are enormous. Uh, And I do research in other spaces and I see, you know, that if, for example, this pharmaceutical supply chain case studies, it's totally solvable. All these problems are totally solvable if, we understand what problem we're trying to solve for. And we can't have an economy in the United States that is only driven based on consumption. We've got to understand the value of balancing supply and demand for, for what's best for workers and consumers. And I think you know, too many people after COVID said, oh my gosh, the supply chain's broken. It's like, no, it's actually been broken for decades. The difference is you just didn't acknowledge that it was broken for other people and not for you. And I think- Growing up in the situation where I saw my city broken in half, I always I always saw those fractures, and I, I just wish more people would see that and understand that you know just continuing to get cheaper you know computers and and clothes is not the only name of the game, and yeah you know, we're just going to continue to see greater social problems, and if you
0: wonder why they happen, that's the source of the problem. Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's such a a great point, and, and honestly, I really uh you know, just an analysis of, of the past few years that 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 really just rings true. Um well, Jack, thank you so much for being a guest of the New Books Network. Uh the, the book is Reinventing the Supply Chain, a Twenty First Century Covenant with America. Um I, I recommend people people check it out. It, it, it's a it's really a fascinating book. Really appreciate it, Gabe. Thanks for the conversation. Of course.